I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to help you do things you don't want to do when you really don't want to do them. This is a core behavior of great entrepreneurs for two huge reasons. First, none of us have done any of this before. 95% of the things you'll be doing to start a startup are going to be new. It's almost like if someone said, hey, you're going to host a barbecue next weekend for 350 people. And you said, there's got to be some mistake. I'm an accountant. And they said, hey, I'm just following orders and walked away. And then you had to find a venue and learn how to cook in bulk and rent a smoker and send out invitations and figure out tables and chairs and parking. Except in that scenario, you've got plenty of information. Your startup scenario has way more ambiguity. Here is an example. Maybe you decide that a good way to test demand and build some early awareness is to create a landing page and share it on a Slack channel where you know your customers hang out. Great. This could be a good strategy, but you've never created a landing page before. So you need to decide on Wix or Squarespace and figure out what to put in your header and whether you put a price on there and should you have a blog and do you make up testimonials and do you need to have a business incorporated to do any of this? Should you pretend the business is running or should you say you've got a wait list? And if you do get something up on Slack, now what? If you get one sign up, is that good? Bad? Does it mean the company's going to fail? What if you get 10? What if you get zero? Should you stop? Everything is new. And that is a problem because new is uncomfortable and our core human drive is to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. Literally, that impacts every decision you make. Which option is least likely to cause discomfort? So, Entrepreneurs succeed when they do things their instincts are begging and pleading them not to do. This is a Herculean task. At its core, a startup is a collection of new, uncomfortable behaviors you'll have to adopt and excel at, all while your inner voice is anxiously poking you and saying, hey, this seems risky. Why don't we just go home and watch a couple of episodes of Monk instead? The second reason doing things when you don't want to do them is a core successful entrepreneurial trait is because lots of things that could provide a ton of value but you don't want to do won't be urgent, so you won't do them. Lots of entrepreneurs live by the Eisenhower box as a productivity tool and decision maker. If you're not familiar, it's a simple four-box matrix with urgency on one axis and importance on the other. The point is to only do things that land in the two quadrants on the right the things that are important and urgent, and the things that are important but not urgent. The problem with this for entrepreneurs is they never end up getting to things that are important and not urgent because there are always plenty of things that are important and urgent, either relating to your startup or your day job or your personal life. And the non-urgent stuff is proactive, not reactive, which makes it more uncomfortable. Urgent tasks tend to be reactive and easier, and you can explain them away as your best use of time. I call this the Al Pacino problem because most people only have time for the six inches in front of their face. I'm not going to do his voice from any given Sunday, but just know that I do have a great impression in my back pocket, maybe later. Anyway, this is useful to know when you're choosing a customer to build for. Your customer will only pay attention to stuff that's immediate and urgent and solves a clear, obvious, painful problem. Stuff six inches in front of their face. Or what I, from this moment on, will call Al Pacino problems. Hooah.
but it's something we need to design for and overcome as we work on our startup. Because to be different, we need to spend time on the stuff that isn't right in front of our face, the important but not urgent stuff. This is usually the work that compounds, the stuff that doesn't have much impact in six days, but might fundamentally change our business in six months. The stuff with long feedback loops and no guarantees of success. The stuff other entrepreneurs avoid. Most founders make decisions based on the floor, doing things that minimize the worst possible scenario. Startups work when founders aim to maximize the ceiling, what can happen in the best case scenario. But lots of those opportunities aren't urgent. One of my favorite examples of important but not urgent and wildly uncomfortable tasks is creating content. I'm not just talking about content that you can outsource to ChatGPT to improve your SEO. That's all well and good, and if you want to put up a token blog that no one reads for that reason, go for it. I'm talking about content that could become a pillar for your business, or maybe the business itself. Content that can live in three places on your all-important funnel. Content that helps people discover you, content that converts customers, and content that gets shared to help you grow organically. Your first instinct is probably to lean away. You don't want to make content because everyone's got a blog or a podcast, right? No, basically no one does. You probably don't have a single friend with a consistent podcast or a blog. Your instincts are simply pushing you away from the idea because it's extremely uncomfortable and it's so easy to view the floor, the downside, and so hard to see the upside because it's unlikely and so far away. For the downside, you've probably never done it before, so you don't know what it takes. It's a tangible thing people can judge you on, and they might say it's terrible. It might even actually be so bad that people make fun of you, and it'll take a long time for you to get any traction, and who are you, anyway? These are all emotional and make-believe. But the upside could be massive and very real. From a customer perspective, it'll help you focus and think clearly and make choices. The key with content is picturing it as a tool to solve a specific painful problem, the dam in the river that will help your customer navigate to build trust. This framing forces you to think of a specific problem in a specific moment for a specific customer and to solve it persuasively in 700 words or a four-minute video. It forces you to think up a compelling title that ideally describes the place you're going to get your customer to after they finish the content. It forces you to find your customer and drop this piece of content in their lap. Second, from a product perspective, a good piece of content acts as a lead magnet on your website to get emails, as a trust builder in a cold email sequence, and as something for your customers to share with each other so you grow organically. You might even get an industry publication to post it. This is a durable piece of work that can be used a thousand times. And finally, from a business perspective, maybe the content becomes part of it. Maybe people pay for it. Maybe your voice resonates. In 2019, I certainly never thought a podcast would be the center of my business. You can sub content for all sorts of things that will increase your luck surface area for your business. Things that compound but are never urgent and are rarely top of mind. Today is about carving out space for them to look past the six inches in front of your face, to do the things other entrepreneurs don't, so you end up where most of them never get. We'll dig in on a system to do this. First, the Costanza swap, how to decide what to work on. Second, the three levers of resilience, your weekly execution plan. And third, building for failure, what to do when the system breaks. After, a little smooth jazz. hoo -ah. 
If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. The Costanza Swap. Most of your instincts around startups are going to be dead wrong. That is why I call this part of the system the Costanza Swap. There's an episode of Seinfeld where George realizes that everything he's done in his life has been wrong, and he decides to do the complete opposite of every instinct he has. The scene ends with him walking up to a woman to try and pick her up with the line, quote, My name is George, I'm unemployed, and I live with my parents. And it works. This isn't the worst way to think about how you should work on your startup idea. Whatever your instincts are pushing you away from is probably the thing you should lean into because if it pushes you away, it'll push everyone else pursuing this idea away too. So to stick with the content example, if you were immediately thrown off by content, maybe spend a few minutes reframing. If I were to be successful with content, what might it look like? If I had to write two posts a week, what would they be about? If I had to send one piece of content that solved a specific problem for my customer today, what would it be? If you immediately push back on customer interviews, that's probably what you should be spending your time on. Your subconscious usually knows where you're weak and protects you from uncovering it. The things with the most upside are the things other people don't do, but our instincts will always push us away from those back towards the herd. The second part of the Costanza swap is the swap part. If you got excited about the content piece during the last minute and decided that you're going to start a weekly newsletter, great. But remember, we're all goldfish. We've already grown to the size of our bowl and you've got no time for anything new. So the first step of working on the uncomfortable stuff is deciding what you currently do that you're going to stop doing. The Marie Kondo one out, one in policy. A newsletter might take you two hours a week, so you have to find something you always do that takes two hours that you're going to stop. A good way to do this is to either look at your calendar from last week and pick the two least impactful hours of your week, or to track everything you do for the next week and figure out the tasks that drained your energy and weren't a differentiator for your business and get rid of those. Figure out how to outsource or build a system to take the things you're dropping off your plate if they're necessary, or drop them all together if they aren't. To summarize, step one. First, your George Costanza and your instincts are probably keeping you from a unique, differentiated business. Consider the opposite and try it out. Chicken salad on rye, untoasted, and a cup of tea. Second, you're a goldfish and you've got no room for anything new. To work on something in a sustainable way, you've got to drop something you always do first. On to part two. The three levers of resilience your execution plan. The last thing you want to do is rely on willpower for the important but not urgent stuff, especially when that stuff is uncomfortable. We've got to create a system with inertia to make it easier to do this stuff than to not do it. About a year ago, a chronic back and head injury cleared up enough that I could start going to the gym again. After a few weeks of relying on my willpower to make that happen, I realized I needed a forcing function and I got a trainer. 
Starting with once a week and building to my current schedule of three times a week, I go down to my basement and hop on Zoom and do Turkish get-ups and side planks and a bunch of other exercises contrived in the depths of hell, and I feel great. About 65% of the time, I'm absolutely dreading it even as I walk down those stairs. But 10 minutes in, I'm happy every time. Never once have I finished and regretted it. I've missed maybe two workouts the past year when I had COVID and probably one here or there for a holiday, but overall, it's been life-changing. The results have been fantastic, and that anchor activity has a waterfall effect on the rest of my week. The same sort of leverage can be applied for the uncomfortable stuff you don't want to do. It's got three parts, scheduling, committing, and dissecting. We'll start with scheduling. It is exactly what it sounds like. You need a time dedicated to do the thing or it won't happen. As a rule of thumb, anything that'll take some willpower should be done first thing in the morning or it'll get elbowed out by more, quote, urgent stuff later in the day. There is one rule for scheduling. If you schedule 6 to 6.45 on Wednesday morning to work on the uncomfortable thing, you have to sit down at your laptop at 6 and you can't get up until 6.45. And during that time, you don't have to work on the thing you said you'd work on, but you cannot work on anything else. No emails, no internet, not even meditation. You either sit there quietly staring at the wall or you work on the thing you said you were going to work on. That is it. And it works. Second is committing. You need consequences for missing your scheduled time. For my workouts, I've got to pay and my trainer gets pissed off if I miss because he's in Hawaii and he has to wake up early for our meetings. I'll be out some cash and I'll feel like a jerk. So missing just isn't an option. There is one rule for committing as well. The consequences need to hurt. Either it has to be public or embarrassing or expensive or all of the three. Missing has to be more costly in some way than attending. This is crucial. The inertia needs to be naturally pulling you towards the thing rather than away. There are all sorts of options here. There's a tool called WorkSitter that lets you pay someone to sit on Zoom with you while you work. Pulling together a group of three people working on startup ideas and picking out times to meet virtually or in person to work, and then saying that if someone doesn't show, they owe the other two people $25 each. Hiring someone to edit your podcast each week requires you to get them a podcast each week. Whatever it is, it needs to be worse to skip and require no willpower. Third is dissecting. The goal here is to carry on the inertia created by sitting down to work. When I hop on Zoom with my trainer, he tells me exactly what to do. I don't have to think. I just do those horrific Turkish get-ups while he yells at me to make sure my glutes are firing. If I hopped on Zoom and he said, so what do you want to do today? It'd be a disaster. The work you're doing is new, which is why it's uncomfortable. The way to make something more comfortable is to be specific about what you have to get done and remove the mystery of where do I start. For example, when I schedule my time to plan the podcast, I break it up. For the first hour, Thursdays from 7 to 8 a.m., my goal is to come up with 10 potential ideas for an episode and then to send those ideas to a few of our most engaged listeners to see what they think. That is it. I'm not writing the full pod or even deciding on the idea. So for the days leading up to that session, I'm pushing possible ideas as they come to make it even easier on myself. In my next session, which is Monday from 7 to 8 a.m., I have to pick the idea I'll pursue for the week and identify the big question I want to answer, the hurdle for the customer that we're going to navigate. I then break that up into a three-part framework, with each part of the framework having an example. 
Suddenly, I've got the skeleton of a podcast, and the rest is just filling in the blanks and editing, something way less intimidating to me than a blank piece of paper. The goal for all of this is to get rid of that blank piece of paper, to build frameworks you can fill in, to rush to the editing stage of whatever you're doing. Like the other two pillars, there's one rule for dissecting. It has to be fun. You need to focus on the part that you enjoy, the thing that gives you energy. This might sound odd, but it works. Coming up with 10 ideas is daunting until I reframe the whole thing as an investigation and I am Sherlock Holmes, thinking through all the startups I'm working with and the dams in their rivers, the things holding them up. When it becomes an investigation, I reach out to my founders often to get their side of the story so I can tell it. Maybe I ask them questions or ask to hop on a Zoom quickly because that is what Sherlock Holmes might do. And for whatever reason, that is fun for me. Even thinking about what would make it fun makes the whole thing more approachable. The whole point of a startup in the first place is to do something with your time that you're going to enjoy more than whatever it is you're doing now. So make sure you're focused on that. To summarize step two, you need to create the conditions to make the uncomfortable, longer feedback loop things easier to do than not to do. This has three parts, scheduling, committing, and dissecting. Scheduling requires you to be there to work, committing penalizes you if you don't, and dissecting makes it easy to get momentum during that working session. And Turkish get-ups get your glutes to fire so your butt will pop in a pair of jeans this winter, or so I'm told. The system works until it doesn't. And that is the last and most important part of all of this. The failure case. My dad took me fly fishing for the first time when I was 14. The goal was to have a father-son bonding trip. Neither of us had gone fly fishing before, but eight hours on a boat together cruising down a river seemed pretty foolproof. On our first day, our guide gave us a crash course on land before we hopped into the boat. The goal, he said, was to cast your line as close as possible to the shore. That is where the fish were, under overhanging branches. This protected them from any eagles that might be cruising by, looking for lunch. Great. We started down the river and I tried to cast my line right up against the bank. But it's hard. It's windy and the boat is moving and my second or third cast landed in the bush and hooked a branch. We had to cut my line to get it back, and our guide had to pull over and spend 10 minutes re-rigging. A few minutes after that, I cast into the bushes again, and again, we had to cut my line, pull the boat to shore, and re-rig. Maybe 15 minutes later, it happened again. I was mortified, and I decided that I was done trying to cast to the shore. I cast a safe distance away from the boat, making sure that I didn't inconvenience this poor guy again, at least for an hour or so. Within five minutes, he realized what I was doing, and he stopped the boat. The fish are underneath the fucking bushes, he said, not in the gosh dang middle of the river. Now cast your line into the bushes. I looked at him, stunned. Go on, fling your line way into the bushes. I did, and the line and hook got tangled in an overhanging tree. He grabbed my line, pulled out his pocket knife, and cut it with a big smile. Now, let me get you set up with some new flies. Re-rigging your line is as much a part of fishing as catching fish is, he said. You cannot expect to just perfectly cast your line against the bank and never overshoot it. Retying flies is part of it. I've worked with startups for about 10 years now, and I think the biggest reason most founders end up stopping working on their idea is that they don't realize that getting your line tangled in the bushes is part of it. 
that lots of times when you try something, it isn't going to work. And that is part of it. It's not an outlier, so you can't build your system to pretend it isn't going to happen. You might do all the stuff we talked about and get a landing page built and get it in front of 250 of your best customers and no one clicks on it. This can be a momentum crusher. Or you can think about it as tossing your line into the bushes and it's time to regroup and try again because getting your line tangled is part of it. Something not working is an opportunity. It's a feature, not a bug. Because every time you do something uncomfortable, like run some new tests or run a new set of interviews with a different customer because the first one didn't work, pushes you further down the path on your own. It gets you further away from what anyone else will do. That is a good thing. Each time you re-rig, you're giving yourself a better chance to catch a fish on the next cast than anyone else. I've got a friend who's got a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and every single time it rains, he takes them outside to play. They have a system a place for their boots and jackets and hat. They have an area of their house with towels and hanging racks for after. They have games they play in the rain. Most involve sliding down muddy hills. Rain is part of it too, he says. It's not a bad thing if you have a system for it. Create a system to pick yourself up when you get knocked down. Don't leave it to willpower. Happiness. I alluded to this a bit earlier, but the point of all of this is happiness. You're working on an idea because you think it'll make you happier than doing something else will. If that's not the reason, I'd reevaluate. But people tend to misunderstand what'll actually make them happy. Happiness is about becoming who you want to be. And if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably someone who does hard things, who helps people solve hard problems, who makes a dent. You won't get there with the comfortable stuff, and you won't do the uncomfortable stuff consistently through sheer willpower. You need a system to do the hard things that'll end up making you happy. And doing the uncomfortable stuff over and over will make you the type of person who can do uncomfortable stuff over and over, even when they don't feel like it. And those are the people who build things that matter. hoo this was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and we can be working on your idea together by the weekend. Have a great week.